steps in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of you have uh, maybe been. How many of you have ever seen the Sears Tower in Chicago? Anybody here? Any of you been up to the top? Okay, just uh, I know a few of you have been to the top, but a lot of you have seen it. Well, at the top of the Sears Tower, well, it's now called the Willis Tower, but they've built this glass kind of box that, that protrudes from the building. It goes out about four and a, I guess, a, about a four and a third feet from the building. Uh, it's on the 103rd floor. It is 1,353 feet high. And you can, it's hard to see it, but you can stand out there and um, have an experience of what it is just to kind of look out over the city suspended in the air, high above the air. How many of you would like trying something like that? Okay. Uh, Chris, is, Chris is a frequent uh, flyer when it comes to jumping out of planes, so that's, that's nothing for him. But just a few of us, right? Or, um, and I'm, I'm butchering the, the name of the area, but in uh, Huangchon, China, there is a bridge. It was just built, apparently, uh, several months ago, just completed. It is 1,726 feet long. It is 660 feet high. How many of you would like to walk across that? As they, apparently, they have lots of these things in China. And uh, different, different kinds of bridges with these, this transparency between the, the, the ground and the sky. And I saw one picture of someone who was so frightened, kind of got to the middle of it, that they froze. And, and uh, friends and family were dragging the person across the bridge to the other side. So uh, if you're afraid of heights, you may want to think about that before you try something like that. But, but for some of us, you know, the reason why we don't want to go and step out into something like that is because it makes us feel vulnerable, right? Like we're in a place that, that human beings really don't belong. And uh, we are now, uh, especially there's been a few times, I think, in the Willis Tower where the glass is cracked. Um, however, there's more underneath, so no one was really in danger, but... Can you imagine being out there and the glass cracks as you're on it? Well, it, it makes us feel vulnerable, so we don't want to do it. We want to protect ourselves. But for others here, an opportunity like that seems freeing. I mean, for them to walk out in a space where nobody's ever gone before, uh, see a view that only birds have seen, and now you have this opportunity maybe to walk across this this beautiful valley and look down on the water below and for some of you that just probably sounds like one of the most freeing and wonderful opportunities in the world and really when we walk in our relationship with God sometimes uh, we have both of those emotions that we experience on one hand sometimes where we feel afraid and what God is calling us to do and we feel vulnerable and so we're we, we want to put up barriers or masks, but for others of us, we realize that it is the most free invitation in all the world to follow Christ, to be his servant. Well, this is um, the third, and we're looking at six qualities of an effective witness for Christ. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at boldness, and we have looked at sincerity. We looked at that last week. This week is transparency, and uh, we're going to look at other-centeredness, we're going to look at industriousness and, and encouragement. Those are six qualities that we see that Paul had in his life when he 
serve the Thessalonian believers. And these are qualities that, that God calls us to in our own lives. And it's through this that we become effective witnesses for Jesus. But there are three things that we must avoid if we are to live transparent Christian lives. Three things. The first thing that Paul notes is flattery, using flattery. Now, there's an old saying, you probably heard it, flattery will get you everywhere, right? Well, the reality is, is that uh, flattery isn't, isn't really a great thing. And um, Paul says at the beginning of verse 5, he says, For we never came with words of flattery as you know. We never came with words of flattery as you know. Now, what is, what is flattery? Well, there's just a, a basic way that we could, we could kind of understand what it is. Um, we're going to go back, though. We're going to go back to, we're going we're gonna to juxtapose it to gossip. Gossip. So flattery and gossip are two sides of the same coin. Gossip is to say something behind someone's back that you'd never say to their face. Would you agree with that? That's what gossip is. That's when we say something behind someone's back that we would never say to their face. We are gossiping about them, and we know that's sinful. What is flattery? Well, flattery is the converse of this. Flattery is to say something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. To say something to someone's face that you'd never say behind their back. And this was a common issue, a common problem, particularly in the ancient world. The the idea of flattery is to tailor the truth in a way that will agree with the hearer's opinion, even if you know that whatever that is isn't correct. Um, Well, why is it that people use flattery now? Why is it that they used it then? Well, they they were trying to get something that they wanted from others. And that's why people use flattery. We use it as a tool to get something that we want from others. And the Bible has many warnings about flattery. Look at this. Proverbs 29.5, look what it says. Proverbs 29.9 says, A man who flatters his neighbor spreads a net for his feet. So if you have somebody in your life who is a flatterer, be careful. Or, um, or Romans 16, 17 and 18, we read this. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. It's a tool. It can be a weapon that we can use to get from people what we want. And that's a dangerous, a dangerous thing. Now, um, in the ancient world, it was often used as a, as a tool to fleece the rich. Now, here's a, here's a quote from... Um, Eupolis. He was an ancient Athenian. Uh, he was an Athenian poet, and this is what Eupolis wrote. And when I catch sight of a man who is rich and thick, I once get my hooks into him. If this money bags isn't that funny? Who would ever thought that money bags would have been a maybe a term um, twenty four hundred years ago? If I get this money, if if this money bags happens to say anything, I praise him vehemently and express my amazement, pretending to find delight in his words. This is this is flattery. And so Paul, one of the things that he, he begins this by saying is, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know. And we we see this throughout the Bible. People use this as a tool 
to manipulate other people. So um, David, King David, experienced this in his life. There was a time where he had a son. His son was very rebellious. His son's name was Absalom. And, and uh, he little did, know, did David know, but he was conspiring to take away the kingdom from David. And so when people would go into the, the royal city to have their case heard uh, by the king, as they were approaching the city, Absalom would stand there by the city gate and he would ask the person who they were, where they were from. He would want to know the details of their case and then he would say, if only I were king, you would get justice. And the Bible says that he stole the hearts of God's people away from David. And as a result of that, there was a civil war that erupted that was a bitter and terrible civil war and Absalom led it against his father. And one of his main weapons, one of his main tools of deceit was flattery. And uh, when we think about what it means to live a transparent Christian life, it begins there. We must never use the the tool of flattery. But also we must be wary of wearing, wearing a mask, of wearing a mask. Paul says in the second part of verse 5, we're going to read the whole verse, but we'll just back up to the second part. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with the pretext for greed, God is witness. Now, um, his, his witness to the fact that he never used flattery was, was the Thessalonian believers themselves. He says, as you know. But it's interesting that his witness that he, well, he never used a mask, is, is the Lord. God is witness. I'd like to read to you what the NIV 84, how it translates um, uh, verse 5, 1 Thessalonians 2, 5. I really like the way it does it. You know, we never used flattery, nor did we put a mask on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Never put on a mask to cover up our greed. One of the problems, one of the things that was, that, that was happening in the city, the Apostle Paul went to the city, and as you know, uh, he preached the gospel there for... Uh, just a short period of time, and, uh, and, and people came to know the Lord, and many of the people who came to know the Lord were wealthy. And so people were accusing him of, of, of kind of stealing them away, using rhetorical tricks because he wanted to somehow uh, uh, get money from them. And so now Paul is defending himself in this situation. And so uh, he needs to point out very quickly that he... He never put on a mask as a pretext for greed. Now, when he refers to greed, this word here for greed is bigger than just seeking after somebody else's finance. It can refer to any insatiable desire to use anyone or anything to meet our needs. To hide behind a mask so that we can manipulate people into something that is not in their best interest, but it's in our best interest. Paul points out that he did not do this. In fact, we get this, this picture of, of the all kinds of greed that he's referring to. If you, the same word is used in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19. Notice what it says. It says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. And then we have the word greedy. This is the same word here. Greedy to practice every kind of impurity. So this kind of greed that he's talking about can be more than just financial we think about uh, some very prominent Christian leaders who have fallen over the last few years. And, and some of them have used uh, their position, their power, their status as a pretext to get something from people that is dishonoring to God. Because 
They want to, they want to fulfill their insatiable lusts, their insatiable desires. So they, they manipulate and they wear masks in order to pretend that they're different than they really are because they have another hidden agenda. What Paul says is that that had nothing to do with his his way of thinking. In fact, Jesus tells us that this comes from the heart. This sin comes from the heart. We notice in Mark chapter 7, verses 20 to 22, Jesus uses this same word again. He said, and he, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, same, same word, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these sins, including the one that he's describing here, these things come from the heart. This kind of mask that we wear is something that sometimes only we can see. Uh, we can have someone in our life who has spent their whole life with us, who know us like no one else, and we can even wear a mask in front of them. How often do you hear the story of somebody who said, I I can't believe that person did that. I've known them their whole life. I could have never imagined them to do it. Realizing that they were wearing a mask the whole time. And sometimes we can deceive ourselves. And that's the reason why in this case, Paul says, God is witness. Because he understands that only God knows the heart. This kind of sin, this kind of of greed that that we will mask, that we will cover up, that we will hide. It's there because... It's there because uh, these things come up from the heart. And sometimes we're not even aware of the wickedness that's in our heart unless the Holy Spirit casts a light on it. Why do we do it? Why do we wear these masks? Well, it's because of shame. Remember the garden. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. When When they... sinned against God, when they rebelled against God, immediately they, sent, they, they had the sense of guilt. They knew that they, they were not in, in right stead with God. And then, and then once they had that sense of guilt, what happened? They were hit with shame. Remember what they did? They took fig leaves and they sewed them together and they covered themselves because they realized that they were naked. That word there for naked that's used in that context... It's actually a pun on the word crafty. If you, if you go back in your Bible, you look at Genesis 3.1, you'll see that it says that the serpent was crafty. Well, the, well the, the, this idea of their nakedness, it, it's actually a word that's, 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 that's a pun on that word. So when it says that they realized they were naked, it means that in some sense they had taken on the image of the, of the serpent. Now God made Adam and Eve in his image and in his likeness. But in the fall, when human beings rebelled against God, that image was marred. And in some sense, they, they took on the image of the serpent and they realized their deep shame. The shame that they couldn't wash away. And so what did they do? They, they, they found a, a fig leaves. They sewed them together and then they covered themselves with the fig leaves to hide their shame. That's exactly why we wear these masks. That's the, that's the reason why we, we, uh, we, we, we want to we wanna protect ourselves and we want to look perfect be, before others and we, we don't want to be vulnerable. It's because, because we have this deep sense of shame. I want you to know that if you're struggling with this deep sense of shame and if there are things about you in your life that, that you don't want anyone to know about and you're, you're afraid of that, I want you to know that, that you, are in, you are in good company because all of us struggle with these same things. But I want you to know that there's release and there's pardon and there's freedom through Jesus Christ. 
who died on the cross for our sins so that through his work on the cross, we can be free from our shame, free from our guilt, never, never to have that used against us from, never to have that used against us again. So far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed your sins from you, he cast it into the depths of the sea, never to be used against you again, and it's through faith in him that we can have that kind of life. What a, what a beautiful thing. We, we, uh, we wear these masks to cover our shame. But Jesus, in his magnificent grace and righteousness, can cover our shame. Take it away forever. The first thing, the first thing that we do that prevents us from living a, a transparent life is we use flattery. Paul says, let's not use flattery. The second thing is uh, we wear a mask. Not wear a mask. Third thing is Seeking applause, seeking applause. Three things that we must avoid if we're to live, in, live transparent Christian lives. We must avoid using flattery, avoid wearing a mask, avoid seeking applause. He says in verse 6, Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. We all want to be encouraged, don't we? Encouragement is a good thing. In fact, um, uh, that's going to be one of the six things that an effective witness does. We encourage each other. But when we encourage each other, we tell the truth about each other, right? Um, We say things to people's faces that we would say behind their backs. We tell the truth, right? And we all need encouragement, and that is good. But there's a a dangerous thing sometimes. But sometimes we can... We can be involved in, in God's work for the wrong reason. It's to seek the applause of men. We always have to be very careful about that and watchful of it because it can be insidious because there's a, there's a deep desire within us. We want to be affirmed for what we do. There's a story of um, Ronald Reagan. He made, a, he made a speech in Mexico City, and it was this huge audience, this huge place, and it was a big deal. And so when he made his speech... Um, there wasn't much clapping. There wasn't much applause. In fact, when he finally got to the end of it, he said uh, he was embarrassed and disappointed because there was only scattered and unenthusiastic applause. So then he sat down. And as he sat down, another man came up to speak at this particular event, and he spoke in Spanish. And he said uh, this, this man would utter a sentence, and people would clap and and there were these thunderous ovations the entire time. And he said he was just embarrassed. I mean, nobody hardly clapped after he spoke. And then this other man is speaking. And to hide his embarrassment, he decided, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going I'm to clap before everybody starts clapping. And I'm going to clap longer than everybody's clapping. And that way I can hide the way that I really feel. So he started doing that. And he was doing that for a while. And then finally the, the ambassador sitting next to him and said, uh, Mr. President, you better not do that. And he said, why? He said, because the man is translating your speech. (laughs) You know, all of us, there's there's a part of us, all of us want that kind of encouragement. All of us want affirmation. But it's a dangerous thing. It's a dangerous thing when, when we seek to serve the Lord because we simply want the applause of men. He says, 
and 6. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. It can be tempting to serve God for what we can get out of it. It's, it's easy to be motivated by things. Maybe we want a certain relationship. Maybe we want to impress a certain person. Maybe we want a certain standing, whatever it is. It's easy to have the wrong motives in serving Christ. And uh, probably one of the greatest weaknesses for anybody who's in public ministry, whether it be somebody who, who um, teaches Sunday school, whether somebody organizes events, whether somebody who preaches in the pulpit, one of the most dangerous things can be a desire for the applause of people. And, um, you know, if we live that life, if, we, if we're just waiting for the applause of people, especially in our service to God, our life can become like a, 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 a roller coaster. And there are a lot of people like that in ministry. I remember when we first came here, 2004, there was just a, a handful of people, and there are a few of those handfuls still here. Praise the Lord for you all these years. Um, just a hand, handful of people who were in the congregation. Um, I know that Bob Thompson told me that summer before we came, there was one Sunday, where there were six people here. And they all sat in one pew together, and they had a preacher come and speak. And uh, I think our first Sunday, there might have been 10 or 12 others besides our family. But you know, when, when um, that was like exponential growth when our family showed up. <laughs> um, but you know, like on a, on a Sunday... On a, on a Sunday, if, or two or three Sundays, if, if one or two people weren't there for a few weeks, it was easy to feel disappointed. Like, like there were some Sundays where we wondered if anyone was going to be there, if anyone was going to come. And of course, somebody was always there. But there was that fear. And I remember feeling that sense of, of, of disappointment if, if people were missing, because I felt like this was our opportunity to build the kingdom together. And, and, and where, where are the troops? How are we going to do this? And then all of a sudden, one Sunday, it dawned on me. You know, if I'm, if I'm here and I'm disappointed because of who is not here, guess what? Well, we're not able to fully worship and enjoy with those who are here. And all of a sudden, a light switch went off in my head. No, no my job here isn't to, to lament about who's not at church. My, my job is to rejoice about who is there. And when we do that, it, it's, it's full of rejoicing and you don't count the numbers and you don't really, it, it really doesn't affect you. And of course, numbers are important because people are important to God. But, but uh, you're not going to live your life based on whether or not who's there, who's not there, how many are there, how many aren't there. It doesn't matter. God's there. His people are there. They want to worship God together. And there's nothing more wonderful than that. It, there's such freedom when you're released from this from this treadmill of trying to get the applause of people and, and wanting your reputation to be built up and wanting people to think highly of you. And just, to, just as we gather together in the presence of God, not for the applause of men, not because we want to please Aunt Matilda, not because we want to, uh, to have, have, have maybe better standing in our job or whatever it is, it's just because we want to gather together with God's people to worship him and to serve him. And that's our sole motivation. And there's nothing more wonderful than that. What a, what a blessing to live that kind of life where we, we don't use flattery, where we don't wear masks, where we don't seek applause. There was an old Puritan prayer, and I wish I knew who was the author of this prayer, but it's a Puritan prayer, and this is what it says. 
It is my deceit to preach and pray and stir up others' spiritual affections in order to beget commendations. Whereas my rule should be daily to consider myself more vile than any man in my own eyes. Let me learn of Paul, Lord. Lord, let me lean on thee as he did and find my ministry thine. What a, what a heart. I uh, had an opportunity to speak uh, about a year ago with a, with a very well-known scholar, pillar in his community, theologian, professor, and, um, and, and, and uh, just happened to ask him, how do, you, how do you remain humble in your position? I mean, he's put on this level by his students when he goes to church. He's put on that level by everybody in his church. And uh, how, how, do you, how do you remain grounded? And you know what he said? He said, I assume that every Christian I meet is farther down the road in the relationship with Christ than I am. Imagine, imagine how that would change our perspective when we assume that other people are further down the road in their spiritual life than we are. Only God knows the heart. Only God knows where we are. But if we live that way, but how, how freeing and liberating it is. Just have a few points of application here this morning. Number one, number one. Now this is about six qualities of an effective witness for Christ. And, and obviously we're on this transparency. But uh, this is the first one. Don't witness like it depends upon you. Witness like it depends upon God. Sometimes we are afraid to share the gospel. Sometimes we're, we're afraid to allow our true colors, our true uh, passion for Christ to show because we're, we're, afraid of, we're afraid of failure. We think it depends on us. And so we don't witness at all. But the reality is, is that it depends upon God. And when people see our, our flaws, when they see uh, our imperfections, what they see shining through that, is Jesus. They see a humility that's unlike anything that the world has. It is a different way of life. It is a different way of living. And it is attractive and it's beautiful because it shines a light on him. In fact, when we're trying to, when we puff ourselves up, guess what we're doing? We're, we, we are, we're blocking the rays of the light that comes from, from God himself. And so we have this, this beauty, you know, we don't have to fear failure. God is faithful. Sometimes we fear rejection. And so then we fall prey to the temptation to sugarcoat the gospel, not share the whole gospel, not share what it means. We live in a culture today where, where people um, are adverse to the idea that we are, we are born in a sinful state, that we are born in rebellion against God. People want to think of themselves as, as being essentially good. And you hear that all the time, I'm a good person. But I don't know how any of us could possibly believe that after, if, we ha if we spend any time watching the news. I mean, think about the crazy stuff that you see on the news every day. Say, that person did that? Can't believe that. Uh, um, and, and we see a steady stream of that. Or we see what world leaders do. Or we see uh, the kinds of posturing that, that, that people use to take advantage of other people. And then what about the stuff that doesn't make the news that we know about? All those, those, those dark secrets that we know about people that other people don't know. That's not going to make the news, but we know that they're pretty bad. Or uh, how about in our own lives, when we peel back the layers in our own lives and we see our own hearts, we realize how deceitful our hearts are and how often we are tempted toward wickedness. It's hard for me to believe that, that people deny all of that, but they, but they do. 
But, but there's some people who, who come to a place where they're convicted about that and they know that they need a savior and they know that they've been separated from God as a result of their sin and they lay awake at night and they, they, they think about their life and they think about their guilt and they don't know what to do with their guilt and they're, they're stuck in that place. And they're wondering if God will ever accept them. And, and we can come to that person and say, yes, he will. Repent from your sin. Turn from your old way of life. Place your faith and trust in him. And, and he will rescue you. Uh, we, we are afraid to talk about the fact that there is a real place called hell, that it is eternal. But I want you to know that there are a lot of people who believe that. And they think that they're going there. And they think that they have no hope. And we have the message of hope where they can be rescued from an eternity there. So we need not be afraid to talk about it. It's the most compassionate thing in the world to talk about it. We, we know that we're lawbreakers. We know that we're guilty. And if we take five minutes and examine ourselves, we know that our works will not get us to heaven. We need someone else. We need a Savior, Jesus, who came to die for us. He took our place on the cross so that through faith in him we might be rescued from the penalty of sin and death. And ushered into a new life of eternity with Christ that will last forever. And there's nothing in all the world that is comparable to that. You see, we don't have to witness like it depends upon us. We need to witness like it depends upon God. Second thing. God gets more glory from our flaws than our seeming perfection. Do you believe that? God gets more glory from our flaws than our seeming perfection. When I say seeming, I mean apparent, like we're not perfect, but we like to make people think we are. We're afraid. We're afraid to let people see our flaws. We think it'll discredit God. It isn't that we're proud in our shortcomings and our sin. It's just simply we know we can cast our cares upon him, and we know that if other people know that we've found this this, this source of, of forgiveness and grace that maybe they'll find it too. We're, we're not uh, some amazing people. We're one beggar who tells another beggar where they can find bread. That's what, that's what we do. That's what the church is. The church is a hospital for the sick. That's who we are. Should we be proud of our sin? No. But we can tell the story of how God has changed us and how he continues to change us. That's why I think one of our favorite services of the year, when we think about our favorite services of the year, what comes to mind? Okay, so I love Christmas Eve. I'll just tell you right now. Uh, I love um, Good Friday. love Easter Sunday. I don't think there's anything that is like Easter Sunday. And every Sunday should be Easter Sunday, right? I mean, because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. That's what we celebrate on a Sunday. But if there's one service that I hear tons of comments about every year, it's when Teen Challenge comes. Don't you love when Teen Challenge comes? And they share the stories of grace. They share the stories of what God has done. And one person will come up and they'll say, you know, I was addicted to drugs and Jesus freed me. All glory be to God. Or they will say, I couldn't get away from alcohol, but Jesus freed me. All glory be to God. Or they'll say, you know, I was an unfaithful husband. But Jesus freed me from that. All glory be to God. And, and there is just such joy in this place as we hear those testimonies. You, you know why there's such joy in this place when we hear the testimonies? Because their story is our story. 
they are just verbalizing what all of us have experienced, all of us have felt, all of us have known. Some of our sin that we've struggled with is less obvious than maybe some of the things that they're struggling with. Maybe we're struggling with some of the same things. But we know, we know what it is to be under the thumb of, of of temptation. We know what it is to be dominated by those things. We know what it is to have Satan pointing his finger at us saying how wretched we are. We know all of that. And at the same time, though, we know the, the freedom and the liberation that only Jesus gives us. We, we know the resurrected life that comes through faith in him. We, we know what it is to be made a new creation. We know what it is to be, to be people who are once full of guilt and shame and having it washed away. And so when we hear their stories, we hear our stories in their stories. And it makes us just shout hallelujah to the Lord. You see... It's, it's, when, it's when people see our imperfections that we bring glory to God because through those cracks of imperfection, the light and the rays and the glory of God shine right through us into a world that, that desperately needs transparency and authenticity. And, and to see lives of people who know that they're broken, but there's only one who can fix what is broken, and that is Jesus Christ. That is, that is our hope. Third point of application is this. True freedom flows from a life of honesty toward God and others. Uh, There is nothing more freeing than to stop pretending to be different than we really are. Do you know that God loves you the way that you are? You can just breathe. You don't have to pretend he knows us inside and out. He knows what we are. And you know, you know that people around you will probably appreciate you more if you're, you're more of yourself than trying to be someone else that you're not. What a gift. He, he gives us the, the ability to be honest before him and before others. You see, God made us the way that we are for a reason and a purpose. And our, and our true perfection doesn't rest upon us, it rests upon Christ and what he's done. There's a story about a, uh, a beggar who used to, who used to um, sit outside of a, of a, of a particular um, building in a, in a big city, a big American city. And the reason why he sat outside of that building was because one of his, one of his friends that he knew from high school, his very best friend worked in that building, but his best friend didn't know it. And so he would sit outside of this building so he would see his friend come in and out every day. And it just was an opportunity for him to see somebody that he cared about. And his best friend was a high-powered lawyer. Well-dressed. He looked like he had everything together. And finally, one day, his, his friend was walking by and saw him by the, by the curb. And he, and he uh, said, hey, do, do I recognize you? And the man in the, in the gutter felt ashamed. He said, well, you should. We, were, we went to high school together. And then the, then the lawyer looked closely at him and said, are you, are you Sam? He said, yeah. I wasn't sure if you'd remember me. Yeah. He said, well, Sam, it's been so long since I've seen you. We were, we were so close, good friends. And, and they began to talk, and they talked a while, and the lawyer had a meeting that he had to be at. And so he said, Sam, I, I want to see you get your life back together again. He pulled out his checkbook, and, and the lawyer wrote out a $10,000 check for his friend Sam, and he gave it to him. And then he went off into the meeting on his way, and then a couple of days later, the lawyer came back to work, and he noticed Sam was there in his same spot, wearing the same shabby clothes, smelling the same way, 
And he said to him, Sam, what did you do with the money that I gave you? Did you, um, did you gamble it away? He said, no. Did you, did, you, did you buy drugs with it? He said, no. He said, what did you do with it? He said, it's still here in my pocket. And he, pulled, he put his hand into his pocket and pulled it out of his dirty pocket, the, the check. He said, Sam, why didn't you cash it? He said, well, I was going to cash it. And I walked up to the bank, and there's this really nice building, and people were all dressed up inside, and everybody looked neat and clean, and everything in there was clean. And I just knew that if I walked in there with a check like this, they would think I forged it. They would think that I stole it. And so I didn't do anything with it. So the lawyer looked at Sam and he said, Sam, I want you to know that what makes that check good isn't your clothes or your appearance, but my signature. He said, go and cash it. And the reality, brothers and sisters, that what makes us look good isn't our clothes, isn't our appearance, isn't how big the Bible is that we carry around in our arms. It isn't any of these things. What makes us look good, what makes us pure, what makes us holy is the work of Christ. That Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross, he took upon himself our sin. In the Old Testament, when they would bring animal sacrifices, they would, they, they, the, the people who would bring the animal sacrifices would lay their hands on the animals as the animals were being put to death. This is a, a, a we have a theological word for it called expiation. There's sin... The people's sin was being transferred into the animals, and then the animals were being punished. And as a result of that, their sin was covered. Jesus had to come and take our sin away. The blood of bulls and goats could never save us from sin. It was just to point us to the ultimate one who would come and take away our sin. But you have to remember that, uh, that when, when Jesus went to the cross and Jesus was punished on the cross, it was as if we had our hands on him. And our sins were transferred to him so that when the nails were driven through his hands and his feet and he was there on the cross, our sins were being transferred into him. And Jesus took upon himself our shabbiness, our sinfulness, our shame, our guilt, our rebellion, all of those things. He took those things upon himself and he died in our place and in exchange he gave us his righteousness and we are covered with his righteousness. You see, what makes it good is not our own righteousness, it is the righteousness of Christ. It is his signature, not our shabby clothes that makes a difference. And my question for you is, do you have his signature written over your life? When you have his signature written over your life, when you enter into a relationship with him by faith, when you turn away from sin and place your trust in him, he will give you a new life, and that new life will be forever, and he will release you from the bondage of sin, and you will experience that relationship that, can, that, that has no comparable in all the universe forever and ever. And the question is, is whether or not you've experienced that. Maybe you struggle with wearing a mask. Maybe you struggle with trying to cover up who you really are. I want you to know you can be who God made you to be. You can be more free than you've ever been. But it begins by being vulnerable. By your willingness to confess your sin to him, to turn away from your sin, and to ask him to save you. And he will, and he'll give you new life, a life in him unlike anything you could ever experience anywhere else.